Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 42 of Yoga Land. On today's episode, I talk to Mati Azrati. It's hard for me to know where to begin when describing Mati because she is a person who is both larger than life in terms of her impact on the yoga world and her accomplishments. And she's also one of the easiest people to relate to and talk to. And I sometimes wonder if this is because we're both very small women and when we see each other, we are immediately eye to eye and we just make each other laugh. Here's a more formal way to describe Mati. If you've ever been to a vinyasa flow class that incorporates alignment, chances are you've been influenced by Mati. Mati is one of the original co-founders of Yoga Works. She opened the studio in Los Angeles with Chuck Miller in 1985, and as she describes it, this was a time when people were a little suspicious of yoga. They thought it was weird. They thought it was exotic and perhaps foreign. And it was her goal to bring yoga to everyday people because she believed, and she still believes, that doing yoga can help us to be better people who can make the world a better place. YogaWorks grew to offer more than 120 classes per week, serving more than 700 students per day. And Mati directed and shaped the teacher training program for over 16 years. She also trained some of the leading teachers in the U.S., teachers who I'm sure you know and love, like Catherine Budig, Sean Korn, Shiva Ray, Natasha Rosopoulos. I could go on all day. I mean, she she's just been hugely influential to to so many teachers out there. I got to talk to Mati while she was at home in Hawaii. And full disclosure, the internet connection was a little tough for us. The call got dropped several times. So I'm piecing together several different calls. It, it might not have quite the through line it always does, but it was still an incredible conversation. She told me about her first meeting with Patabi Joyce. She took class with him in 1987, and that was the start of a very serious period of Ashtanga practice for her. We talk about how her practice has changed over the years and how her in-depth meditation practice that she's taken up in the past few years has changed both her practice and her teaching. And among other things, we talk about how she sees alignment as pure love, and I love that. So we'll get to the interview in a moment, but I wanted to just first thank my iTunes reviewers. It's been a very long time since I've thanked you and it really makes a difference for the podcast to have these reviews and this feedback. And I did get some feedback that sometimes I sound, I think like a Valley girl, which I do. And I work on it. You guys, I really do, but old habits die hard, but seriously, it is, it's always good to get any kind of feedback. So if you enjoy the podcast, if you have something you're dying to tell me if you want to leave a five-star review I will love you forever and ever and thank you to these people who did leave five-star reviews E. Riley Smiles Julie K 616 Mr. Bookworm 0229 Allison Yoga Lilo Green Cora Francis Stacy Fetters Hateness Idlewild Doug F26 Buffalo Nick Frederick spelled with a PH Thomas 3492, Melissa McL, Jen Coons, Sassy Griffin, and Barber 1586. And then lastly, I just wanted to say hi to all of my listeners who are not in the US. Jason got just got back from a trip to London, Antwerp, and Oslo, and he told me how many of you went up to him and told him that you appreciated the podcast. So I just want to say I appreciate you so much for listening. And it made me go into my little analysis tool and see how many people are listening from all around the world. And it's just incredibly exciting. And if you are in Singapore or you want to study with Jason in Singapore, he will be there from June 2nd through the 6th doing a teacher development program and also an individual weekend workshop series you can check our website and through for details. It's jasonyoga.com slash schedule. Okay, now on to the interview with Mati. Tell me about the first time you met Tripatabi Joyce or something memorable about your early meeting with him. 
Well, the first meeting is kind of a funny story. So maybe I should tell it to you. Okay. <laughs> I was running a yoga school in Los Angeles called the Center for Yoga for a man named Ganga White. And I was living in his center. I was 22 years old, something like that. And he told me that I had to move out because someone big was coming and needed to stay at, at the center. Sure and behold, it wound up being Patapa Joyce. So I actually filled and hosted Patapa Joyce's first workshop in Los Angeles. I think we had something like 70 people in the class. Wow. Patapa Joyce had a demonstration with some of his senior students. And I'm not sure, it's been a long time, so I'm not sure who they were, but I think Tim Miller might have been one of the students. Mm -hmm. That class just was so much fun. I, I loved it. Was it the 80s? When did he it come? It was 1986. Wow. So I, I feel like I do remember that some of your earlier yoga experiences were with Ganga White, and he's not an Ashtanga teacher, so was this like the first time you saw Ashtanga yoga? Yes. So my first trainings and really the first two years of my trainings was Iyengar yoga. So I oh, started. Okay. Yeah. My first teacher trainer was Donna Holloman. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Okay. So yeah. I'm a definite Donna Holloman was definitely was a devotee of Donna Holloman. Still, she is, I consider her my heart teacher. Mm-hmm. And Ganga White, I didn't really study with him so much, but he was, you know, he had his own flow yoga thing going on. So, yes, uh, that class with Katabi Joyce was the first time I'd ever done a shanga. I mean, was it love at first class or how did it feel? Yeah, the, the sequence, the heat, the energy in the class was definitely love at first sight. Mm -hmm. And were you one of the only women there or were there, was it mixed? The class was huge. No, we had plenty of women in oh, class. Oh, good. Okay. Okay. It was, yeah. it was a big hit, you know. And then from there, so how did, did you start incorporating Ashtanga into your practice on your own? Like, how did you then get into the practice in a more regular, consistent way? After that, I followed him. He was teaching at the center that Ganga White has in Santa Barbara. And then we went ahead and went down to where Tim teaches. So I, I followed Patabi after that one class. And it was natural for me. I just, um, I just started practicing the sequence. Yeah. Yeah. But I never stopped doing the Iyengar stuff. So I never did. Okay. Continuously studying Iyengar yoga. That's definitely something I think that makes you so unique. I didn't realize that the Iyengar came first. Now it kind of all makes sense to me. I, mean, I think you're a very unique Ashtanga yoga teacher in that you totally respect and honor the tradition, but you incorporate some Iyengar yoga as well. And it's like somehow you bridge the two. I don't know how you do it. It's natural to me. I don't, I, I don't see a conflict. I never have. Uh-huh. Did you ever sense that there was a conflict like from Patabi Joyce? Did he know that you were incorporating Iyengar into your classes? Yes, there was definitely, it's bizarre because in the beginning, he always called me an Iyengar student. He always, oh, you Iyengar student. So he knew, he could see by the way in which I practice that there was Iyengar alignment. I mean, I recall that one day being in the car with him, we were driving him in San Diego and he specifically said, Iyengar yoga postures, very good postures. Hmm, that's good. He specifically said that. Yeah. I mean, as the years went on, I think he was more in conflict with the yoga works school and not teaching, not teaching Ashtanga exclusively. One time we were at a, a dinner at his house. His uh, granddaughter and her husband were there. And, you know, Patapi didn't speak very good English. So sometimes it was hard to explain things to him. So, yeah, I remember I told Gurdji, you know, not everybody has the time in America to do yoga every day. And that I felt and we felt that it was important for more people to do yoga and that, you know, 20 minutes, a uh, half hour of a yoga practice three times a week is better than nothing at all. And that this was one of the biggest reasons why 
we um, had these classes that were didn't look like Ashtanga, but definitely served the kind of people that were coming to the school. And the granddaughter and her husband translated it. And I think he did kind of relax with it a little bit. But I think for the most part, it was never something that he fully embraced. Yeah. You would have liked yoga works to have been strictly in a stronger school. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. That's what he devoted his life to. Yeah. Since you had the Iyengar background and you had, I mean, I know you, so I know your passion for alignment. What was it about him that drew you to him? Why do you think he became your, your teacher, your next teacher? I would say he was one of my teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something about that flow, that Ashtanga sequence. If you have a body that is capable, it's really fun. And mm. he was a very fun teacher. I mean, he just was fun. I mean, classes were, you know, joyful. And they were challenging, you know, and I was also young. I was 23 years old. Yeah. It's such a great practice for when you're young. It's a great practice when you're young and you have a body that likes to do these kinds of poses. And he was a magician at making us work hard. And he had that ability that like that coach ability to get us to work harder. And I'm the kind of a triple A type that likes that. Mm hmm. Yeah. Did you have a dance background growing up or like, had you ever been in your body in that way before yoga? Yes. I started dancing when I was very little. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Because I mean, like I said to you in my, in my email, we were going back and forth, you know, after years of doing photo shoots at Yoga Journal, like there is just no one to compare you to in terms of your ability to see detail in the body and to see all different kinds of bodies and what they're doing. I can, I can remember showing you photos. Like, I don't know if you remember this, but we would, um, if you were doing a story for me, I would ask you for model suggestions and then you would give me some names of your students. And then I would get the photos and print them out. And like, there was one time where we actually got to talk about them face to face. You happened to be in town and you were like, Oh, this needs to happen. The right hip needs to go up ankles, a little bit collapsed, blah, 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 blah. And you went through your whole thing and Chuck went, picky, picky, picky. (laughs) (laughs) But it was, it's just, you have like a magical, I mean, I I just, Richard Freeman is the only other person who could come close, I think, to your just innate ability to, to see people. That's, that's, thank you. That's, that's a, that's a quite a compliment. (laughs) Is that something that you feel has, has helped you in training your teachers? And like, do you notice that in yourself? I mean, I think it's mandatory for teachers to understand alignment and not only because of its safety and the ability to help people progress in their practice, but it's also just such a clue in to working with people's mindsets. It goes far beyond just a technical mechanical part of the body that will help you get more flexible or stronger, but it's actually a window into helping people break, make breakthroughs in the way in which they perceive themselves, perceive their practice in the way they, in which they approach how to work. It's an amazing tool. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it's something that has to be somewhat in a a person as they become a teacher? You know, do you think there has to be a certain amount of innate talent in that direction or do you think it can be taught and learned? No, I think you can, it can be taught and it can be learned. It is, yeah, it, it absolutely. I mean, some people have more of a knack for it than others and can develop it in a way in which they use it in order to help students reach themselves in a different way. But for others, they can do just enough of it to keep the students safe and their other talents can play into that part. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yes. Yeah, a certain amount of it uh, is necessary and I do believe can be learned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Growth mindset. Yeah. So how has your practice changed over the years as you've gotten older? I'm curious about, you know, the long-term arc of a serious Ashtanga practice. Well, I, I'm definitely older and definitely less inclined to have my day 
surrounded by my practice in the, in the morning. There's no question that when you're practicing third and fourth series, a great deal of your day is surrounded by making sure that you're ready to do this again in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not there anymore. I, I have other interests and, you know, I've, I've done the sequences many, many times that my life is just doesn't warrant that kind of attention to practice. But I still practice the sequences, but much more modified. It's mostly first and bits of second series, and it's much more modified. It's I've always had a slow practice, but it's slower. I'll do, do a lot more restoratives, and I use more props than I used to. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned when you started Yoga Works that it, it was not just uh, an Ashtanga studio. Obviously, Yoga Works has turned into, you know, it's a household name. It's just a, a highly respected Yoga studio still, even though, you know, you're not the co-owner anymore, it's obviously made a huge, just a huge impact on yoga in the West. Did you guys have any anticipation of that when you were first opening it? What was yoga like in Los Angeles when you opened the studio and what was your vision at that time? Well, when Yoga Works opened in 87, people were still gun shy about yoga. A lot of people still considered yoga as maybe religious. Oh. Yeah. It was not common. I mean, I think they were like, there was the Shivananda Yoga School, there was Center for Yoga on the other side of town, and then there was Yoga Works. It was uh, a challenge in opening it to make, make the place comfortable so people did not think they were walking into some kind of a cult or a religion thing. Mm. First thing we tried to do, and that was, you know, in the way the place looked, with the name, with the logo, with everything, was just like, let's take that out of the equation. And there was no Ashtanga at the time. The Iyengar Institute was also just opening. So it was kind of like a blank... uh, board to decide what to do. Yeah. Was it the Montana location that opened first in West LA? Yeah. Okay. Wow. On the most expensive street with no one thought we were going to make it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a very high end little area over there. Yeah. But remember the day when we opened, the street was empty practically of shops. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. There were like, Two shops, the the supermarket across the way was one of those dinky little supermarkets. It was a very different street when we opened up. Do you look back on that time and think, oh my gosh, I was such a baby. What was I doing? Or did you feel, do you feel like, yeah, I was just meant to do that? Ooh, that's a good question. (laughs) I mean, as I was running it, I definitely felt like, what on earth am I doing running this thing? And definitely when I started teaching the teacher's training program, I completely didn't feel like I should be there. Yeah. But other than that, I don't think I spent too much time thinking about it. I mean, I was I was young. I really believed that yoga could change the world. Mm. And I really believed that if more people did yoga, we'd have a better place in the world to live. That really was my sole interest in opening up the place. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you still believe that? I do. I do. I think that the more people that do yoga, the better it is for the world. Yes, I still do believe that. Yeah, I do too. I do too. But hearing it said that way, you do feel like, oh my gosh, well, then now there are a lot of us. Are, are we making enough of a difference yet? You know, I think we're kind of at a critical critical junction somehow. Yes, we are. You started doing meditation, longer meditation retreats several years ago. Has that affected your practice and and your life? I would assume that it has. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sitting. Silent retreats has definitely had an impact on me and maybe even more of a profound impact impact on me than even yoga. Perhaps Mm -hmm. it's it's a little hard to judge it because I have all these years of yoga behind me. But yeah, it's a very powerful experience. And it definitely takes you to the next level of practice. What are some of like the tangible ways that you feel like it helps you at this point in your life? Well, first, you get to study your mind in a way that I don't think yoga asana practice 
provides. You're sitting and you're, you're watching your mind stuff. You're watching all the chatter in your mind. And over a period of time, you begin to see how this chatter is conditioned. It's not real, but it's constantly affecting you. And then you are learning and studying tools in which you can take a pause from it, like see it from a looker, an observer, and you take a little space from it and you begin to start the work of not letting it affect you. And I think this is a, a lifetime amount of work. I don't, it doesn't magically happen after one retreat. As a matter of fact, it probably gets worse after a few retreats because you so much more aware of it and mm. you can so see it. But it also provides uh, an understanding that, oh my God, this is not me and I can begin to make some changes. And it's definitely helped my teaching. Wow. Question about that. In what ways? Well, believe it or not, I am not the most confident person in the world. <laughs> I don't really have a lot of self-confidence. Huh. I, I I actually really don't. And going into teacher yoga class for me is is real practice. I'm almost always nervous before I go teach a class. Huh. And I take things really personally. So like if I am not pleasing everyone in the room, I, I really take it personally. It's it's hard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes when you teach yoga, you you need to say something or help someone in a way that might not make you so popular with them. Mm. And in past, I would just leave class and I would just be so upset with myself because I knew that person is is not happy with what I asked them to do. But now it's different. I, I've really, meditation's really helped me to step back and to understand that people, that doesn't need to be so personal for me anymore. And um, it's, it's helped me be a better teacher. And now what I do is I pause for a moment. I ask myself, is my intention 100% good towards this person? Am I acting because out of love and out of absolute 100% compassion for this person? And if I am, and the answer is yes, then it's it's amazing. It's magic. If, if they don't like it, I embrace them energetically, but I don't take it on anymore. That is such great advice. That's such great advice. I, I mean, I'll share this and I feel like people who listen to me a lot have probably heard me talk about this a lot. So I apologize, dudes. You know, one of the things I feel like I'm learning how to do with in being a parent is just to set boundaries because with little kids, they just, it's really their job to test the boundaries. It's part of their exploration and part of their growth. And so it's not that they're doing anything wrong, but they do it nonstop. Like it is so exhausting. And you know, I f it triggers me. Like it, it makes me really angry. And I felt so uncomfortable with feeling, just even feeling anger, like not even expressing it to her, but just feeling it. And I'm starting to do exactly what you just said, which is to say like this, you know, if I'm responding to her and my voice sounds a little stern or if I sound angry, like if it's not loaded anger, like if it's not loaded with some something that happened to me earlier in the day or some per way I'm taking something she's doing personally, or I don't even know what, if it's not loaded, if it's just, I'm trying to teach her and I'm trying to inform her, then I can be okay with that. It's like that clean emotion or that clean interaction with someone, as opposed to it being loaded with like psychological crap. Exactly. And in the past, it would be I would mix it up and I would go, God, they're not listening to me or they're, they don't, they don't, trust me, or that just goes away now. I can just snap it right out. It's like, it's instantaneous. And, and I really believe it's come out of my meditation practice and seeing how I am on a silent retreat for a month, how I act, what it is that my mind does. And it's transformed me. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I was listening to, um, I was actually listening to a podcast with the Dalai Lama the other day. And he said, I just wish it would be called mind training. I just think because that's what it is. It's just mind training. 
And yeah, it's true. It's like wherever that came from in you or wherever that comes from in me, like whatever, you know, childhood thing or psychological thing or relationship thing, or, you know, it sort of doesn't matter. You just, but you do have to have the tools to let that conditioning go. I agree. Yeah. What do you think makes a great yoga teacher? Ooh, that's a great question. Many different things make a great teacher. That's the wonderful thing about, you know, having a yoga school and a teacher's training program is if, if you're wise, you can train so many different flavors within, you know, a classroom. I mean, some teachers are just, you know, they have their, the talent of vocabulary. Some people have the talent of alignment. Some people have, I mean, there's just so many different things that you can develop in people. I mean, I think the, the very basic today, and I think what talked about it earlier is I, I do think that the, the, the basic understanding of, of, of how to teach a pose and how to deal with different types of students is the beginning of a, of a really good teacher. And that's something that I think takes a while to learn. You can stand in front of a class and lead them through a nice sequence. They could sweat, maybe even listen to music, but that's not teaching yoga. So what makes a great teacher is somebody who's going to study the aspects of yoga that maybe they're not so comfortable with. Like for some people, maybe it's alignment. For other people, maybe it's the philosophy. And that they truly have a need to help people, help students be more comfortable with themselves, Hmm. see how they affect each other, see how their role in society uh, has an effect. And that it's not so much about you, the teacher, you, you know, the trainer, you, the person who has many people in the class, but that you're really studying how to make a difference in people's lives. And how do you walk into the room and fit that role with different people so that the outcome is that they live a better life, that they have more comfortness within themselves. Yeah. It takes years. It, it, it's a lot. It's a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I was thinking as you were just talking about what we were talking earlier about when you said sometimes, you know, you still get nervous before you go in the room and all those things. I will say, I mean, I think that that aspect of your personality it's like a vital part of you too, in that I have always found you to be, as one of the senior teachers that I used to talk to at Yoga Journal, I always found you to be the most immediate and the most loving. And I could always tell when I talked to you that you love your students, like genuinely, wholeheartedly, you just love them. And I think that, you know, like the shadow side of that is maybe you get nervous before class or you care what they think about you in moments of, you know, things like that. But I feel like that's also, you know, such a part of that, that just like informs your teaching. And that's part of what you were talking about, about trying to see the individual and help them kind of guide them. And I wonder, I'm just putting this out there and you can let me know what you think. I wonder if, you know, that part of your teaching obviously it came from just like your intrinsic personality, but I also wonder if that part kind of came from Patabi Joyce and then like the real meticulous alignment stuff came from Iyengar and you put it together and then you've got Mati. Mm, interesting. <laughs> you know, Patabi definitely gave me that juice of walking into the classroom and turning people on. Mm. He was really good at that. I mean, when you saw him in a class with even in the later years, 250, 300 people. I mean, when that guy came in the room and he said, Samas Titi, he, we could have jumped through the roof for him. It was just, you know, he had that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he definitely fired that up in me. But, you know, even though Eingar fired up alignment for me and all the Iyengar teachers that I studied with, I translated the alignment as love. Hmm. To me, the alignment of Iyengar yoga is pure love. Hmm. It's about 
helping people, you know, not get hurt on, on the very, you know, primary level and also about reaching the highest potential, about order, about harmony. To me, at the root, you know, take away maybe some of the stylisticness of it that I don't particularly necessarily agree with. But at the root of it, alignment is pure love. Mm. Yeah, I mean, when you say it that way, it makes sense. It's it is like a deep form of care. Yes. It's a deep form of care that you're conveying to someone else that so that they can do it for themselves. Yes. I say this all the time in teachers' trainings. If I'm handing you a blanket, if you are handing a blanket to a student, it is my job and it is then for your job later to explain this is not something that you're doing wrong. I'm not giving you this blanket because you're doing something wrong. I'm giving you this blanket as a way of reaching out and being loving towards you. And until you fundamentally understand that, you have some things to work on in your practice. Because if you take the blanket, if you take the block as a way of it being something being done against you, then the yoga still has a way to go and work on. You you have some work to do. Right. I mean, it's interesting. You know, you think about that response in someone of feeling like being handed a prop, being handed a blanket, being handed a block is something that they should be averse to. It's like, again, like going back to the conditioning, we're conditioned to believe, especially I think in this, in this country, we, we like stress individualism so much that we're conditioned to believe that needing help or not being able to do something like exactly the way everyone else does something means there's something wrong with us. And like you said, I mean, you know, once the yoga starts to work, you see like the the myth of that, you see that it just doesn't have to be that way. And it goes back to, you know, in the past, I would take this personally. Now I take it as my job. That's my job as a teacher is to make that dissipate in people. That's my job. And if they don't get it, it's not something I did wrong. Well, I mean, of course, I can always reflect it the way I did it. I can always bring in, I've learned to bring more humor, to bring more, you know, to, to, to set the context differently for different people. Because you, you can feel right away who's going to have an issue with that. So I've definitely trained myself and learned but even if it doesn't go as smoothly as I would like, I don't take it personally anymore. But I say, okay, we just need to work more. That's all. We just work more. Yeah, I was going to say, like, how do you convey those types of subtle things? The first thing is communicate. I communicate now, just right up front. I communicate. And, and if I see someone who's averse to it, I'll approach it. I say, you know, I know that a block seems like less fun. But it's it's actually going to help you extend your spine, and we're going to be able to uh, move further. I, I just I talk. Yeah. about how I think it's really amazing that you you went through the Ashtanga series. And I don't know, quote unquote, like how far you went, but you've talked about like third series. You know, you, you, you were really, really practicing deep into the series. It gets progressively more difficult as you go through these different series. And yet, you know and believe that the poses are not the point. I wonder if there was ever a time where you got seduced by the poses, because I think that's really common for people right now, especially with Instagram and like seeing all these poses and just, you know, that desire to just like have that self-mastery and do that. It's normal. So I'm wondering if you ever kind of got seduced by the poses. And if you did, how did you get out of it? Like what happened? I was definitely seduced by the poses. (laughs) I'd like to tell you that I was above it. (laughs) The way that we were studying is that 
you wanted the next pose. It's just the way Patabi Joyce set it up. It was just, uh, he was magical at it. I mean, he knew how to make you work for the next pose. And there was a period of time where I did identify the depth of the poses with, you know, the yoga, the big yoga. I think it was maybe in my late 30s when, you know, yoga works got more difficult to run and my life got more stressful at the, at the job. And I started to no longer go to class, to the Meister class. And I started practicing at home that I think I started tuning in a little bit more to, to my own needs and realizing, wow, third and fourth every day is really hard. Really depleting even maybe. Yeah. Yeah. For years I did all of third and three quarters of fourth, you know, four days a week. And I don't know, I think it just was a natural process. It was like, oh, you know, naturally like, oh, I'm home. Oh, you know what? I think I'll do a little less today. And it felt good. And then teaching, teaching and uh, realizing that students uh, need different things. And seeing the my, my Ashtanga room and the, and the dynamics in the room and, and noticing that it was really important to create a different atmosphere that the third series students would be too hard on themselves if they were tired that day. And if I suggested to do some restoratives, they would have like a, a moment of a fit. And I think it was just a natural process of realizing that, that this had to change. And also maybe truthfully, a little bit of a, a hard knock about the guru thing and Patabi Joyce and seeing that world kind of just kind of not idealizing it anymore yeah I I there was definitely a very clear moment of you know what this isn't it <laughs> right or like this person doesn't have all the answers oh yeah very clear. like this is definitely going in a way that it's not right it's mm. not right for me. and I think that that letting that go really opened up the door to seeing things differently yeah the whole thing about the props in the Ashtanga room, like if you are modifying or if you're giving a prop to someone, you're not in the system. That just was so completely never felt right to me that I think it was all of it come together. It was like, yeah, let go. Let's see what happens. Yeah. There's a point where it's like, uh, first of all, I mean, what you're describing it, you know, in terms of like getting to your late thirties, like that's kind of the beauty of the aging process is, you know, the downside is like your body does change and you feel it more, you feel things more and that can be, can feel like a downside, but then it's also kind of a beautiful thing because you, you're sort of forced to take care of it in a different way. So like, yeah, this thought of having the knowledge of, of how to, how to use the props and help yourself and help other people, it must've just felt so illogical that it was poo-pooed in terms of being able to bring them in the room must have just felt really illogical yeah I, mean, I do really believe that the ashtanga system is way too focused on the next pose and on the sequence and there's a real danger in associating the posture with the, the big practice as as it is the same in the Iyengar system yeah where the alignment is associated way too much with the big yoga I have yet to find a balance within the two systems and, and teachers that are super balanced in, in, in that. It's a really hard dance because, I mean, I think the beauty of the Iyengar system is um, they're teaching something so beautifully, right? They're teaching mastery. Like it, it's just such a beautiful thing to experience that. And it does focus the mind, right? It, it is a technique and a tool in and of itself, but then how to walk the line, like you said, between, and, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about in our earlier discussion. We ended the discussion last time with talking about like this challenge of being a modern yoga teacher and a modern studio owner, which is having to fill the rooms, right? We all have to pay the bills. Like that's life. That's just reality. Having to fill the rooms and, you know, seeing that students, uh, rooms get filled when the classes are really hard and they're, I went often when they're more fitness focused and I don't want to talk badly about fitness. I think this country like needs people focusing more on fitness. So that's a good thing, but it's not, it's not the totality of yoga. So it's like, how do you, I guess I would want to ask you, how do you walk the line between providing 
people with what they need so that they come back and giving them maybe what they don't know that they need? Do you just kind of trust that the process works itself out or do you approach things differently than you used to? Let me talk just for a second about the the old days at Yoga Works because we, even then, provided all kinds of options. So my Ashtanga students very, very often on Saturday attended Iyengar classes. That's great. If for some reason they missed, you know, they had to work or something, they'd go to an Iyengar class instead. And we had some a lot of restorative classes. We also had a very popular teacher that taught really, really easy kind of classes. And people went. So I think if you provide really good stuff along with the fitness, people do go. Mm. They do. I, I really, really believe it. And even if only 20% go, that's great. So... I think that if you are a school owner today, or even if you're a teacher today, if, if you offer other options, th- there's going to be the odd chance when that fitness kook is going to go, oh, you know, there's that, that candle light restorative thing, and maybe I should try it today. And, you know, wow, the light bulb goes. So I think it's, just, it's a matter of, as a teacher or a school owner, that you create a a a, a holistic program and that you trust then that within that holistic program upon recommending maybe doing different kinds of promotions on those other classes they do fill I mean in I think still till today the Iyengar classes at Yoga Works in Santa Monica are packed full oh that's great wow see it's not like that in San Francisco but I think one of the problems in San Francisco if I may say as one of the things that I did at Yoga Works with the Iyengar teachers is I really talked with them a lot about attitude. Hmm, interesting. Because I think a lot of the Iyengar teachers, and maybe there is a little bit of that in San Francisco, the attitude needs to change. It's like if a student is not listening to you and is not doing exactly what you said, it doesn't work to yell at them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It just doesn't work. Maybe that's part of it. I really tried really hard to talk to my Iyengar teachers and to tell them that they were in a different environment. This was not an Iyengar institute and, and that their job was to help the, the, the rest of the students come into the system. Mm. Those people that were good at it, that were just good at doing that. I think one of the things that is going on today in yoga schools is that the directors at the top are not yoga teachers and they're not yoga people. So they're just like looking at the numbers and it either works or it doesn't rather than thinking in a holistic manner as to how to bring the whole thing together. Right. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is, I think we've spoken about this before. I think you, you have to talk to students. I mean, I teach at these wonderlusts and I have, you know, pretty good sized classes And I don't, I'm not a workout teacher anymore. I mean, my classes can be hard, but let's face it. If you can't do a good down dog, that's what we're going to, we're going to work on it. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to just communicate. You have to communicate. And I think you have to have skills in how to make, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. I was at uh, Gita Iyengar's intensive uh, a while back. And it was an amazing class. I remember it was just like a three-hour class, and it blew my mind away. And I went upstairs to my hotel because it was a conference. I went upstairs, and I wrote the sequence down, which I very rarely do. But this time I did because I was like, wow, that thing was so great. And when I wrote the sequence down, it was shocking. She did five poses. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. In three hours. And I was never bored. And it wasn't super, like when I wrote them down, I was like, this wasn't that hard. I'm like, God, could I do this sequence for three hours? Yeah. It was a real mind opener for me that, okay, it's how you teach. It's what you know. It's, I mean, she challenged us like, and it was basic, basic, basics. Yeah. Yeah. So I think part of it is that we have teachers that don't have those skills. So they're just working you out. They just don't have this. They can't fill up three hours 
of, of a basic asana. They, they don't have the skills. They don't have the knowledge. So that's interesting. I can totally see that. And, I, and to your point about the way that Iyengar classes are taught, you know, I had taken Iyengar classes here and there, not, not even just in San Francisco. Like I, I remember once I was in Massachusetts and then I went to a Patricia Walden class. And I yeah. had that same experience that you had with Gita Yangar. It's like my mind was blown. And it was her passion and her enthusiasm and her clarity of language and the way her vo- she used her voice and the way she held herself. And it was like, I remember, I, actually, I, I, re- <laughs> I, I sometimes think I should write in my bio that like one of the best moments in my life was when I was doing... Upavishta Konasana and Patricia Walden came over and like touched my outer legs and said, you're working very well, good, well done or something. And I wa- she walked away and I was like, yes, <laughs> you know, it was like yeah. such a feeling. And, you know, and just that she would do that. Like you said, it's like, that's an approach of being encouraging and passionate and making it exciting. And well, she's done the work. I mean, she, I mean, we're talking about one of the most capable senior teachers out there, you know? And I think even if you, you know, are a crazy flow person, you, you would go to her class and you'd get something out of it and you, you might even have a real experience. Right. And she's not going to be pushed around if you don't like it. She's going to stay steady and hold her ground. And, and that's, it's a rare thing now to have senior, we just don't have that many senior teachers left. Right. And well, and Jason often talks to his teachers about, you know, he says, I think of myself as an educator. Like I am an educator. That's what I've always wanted to do in, in, you know, whether I ended up in, I'm lucky that I ended up in yoga, but I would have ended up in some other field being an educator. And, And that's kind of what you're describing is not just leading a class, but thinking of yourself as teaching a subject. Right. And so I want to actually ask one question about, I, I love what you said about thinking of the totality of the schedule and the program, right, at a studio and looking at it as a whole. Two questions about that. When you were at Yoga Works, did you simply accept that some classes were going to be like the gangbusters sellout classes and that it was okay that other classes weren't as big? And then did you also kind of have to encourage those teachers who maybe didn't like fill up their classes? No, I never accepted that the other classes couldn't be big. Mm. There is one thing that I think as a school owner, you, you do need to identify. And that is there are a few special individuals that can get class numbers to 50s, 60s, and 70s. But that is one out of 200 teachers. Hmm. It's really rare. And you cannot count on it. And not only that, you shouldn't be going for that. But. 30s and 40s is not so outrageous. Not too shabby. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And almost anyone with a little bit of love and a little bit of care and put them in the right soil can do that. Hmm. So my job was to identify the teachers that just needed, they needed some help with their soil, so to speak. You know, the, the plant image that we spoke about maybe is helpful here. That sometimes... Teachers want to be flow teachers, but that's not their dharma. Their dharma is to be beginning yoga teachers. And you take them out of the flow and you put them in beginning yoga classes. And it is astonishing what can happen. Mm. I've had so many teachers like that. And sometimes after they're in the beginning level classes for two, three, four years, all of a sudden they can move up the levels. You know, and sometimes it's, it's just that that teacher thinks they're they should have a 7.30 in the evening class because it's a popular time slot, but it's not their energy. Their energy is to be in the morning at 10 o'clock and you move them and all of a sudden everything changes. So it's, you can affect, but you're not going to be able to have a staff of 45 teachers with 75 people in each of their classes. That's not going to happen. That's a rarity and it's a gift and it's a particular kind of person. And that person comes with their own problems and their own issues. <laughs> If you're trying to do that, you're going to have a very hard time. But if you're okay with the 30s and 40s and 25s, there's lots of people that can learn to be those teachers. It's, it's not so difficult. 
So here's the thing. I mean, this goes back to what you were saying about the reason that I, you were able to identify that is because you're a yoga teacher yourself and because you have done the work and because you have a gift for reading people. You were saying that there are many s- studios now that aren't necessarily owned by teachers and might not have that ability. So if we look at it, I'm thinking like about the parallels to the government, right? Like there's many, there are many women who are saying now, if we want to see more women in government run for office. So if we want to see more studios that are run in a more humane way. Maybe we need to encourage yoga teachers who have that gift and have that talent to own their own studios. What is some advice you would give to a teacher in terms of not burning out or like how to take care of yourself if you are a teacher and a studio owner? Because I know there are some people listening who are teachers and studio owners. Naomi, I'm talking to you. <laughs> uh, that's, it's really, really hard. <laughs> yeah. And you did it for a long time. I mean, that's not to say that you will never burn out or you'll not need to change at some point. Obviously, there was a point where like you needed to make a change in your own life. But you did it for a long time, really well. Yeah, I did it for a long time. Uh, mind you, though, the majority of my classes were Mysore classes when I was running the school. I only conducted one or two classes a week. For the most part, it was Mysore. And energetically, walking into a Mysore room, for me, is much easier to teach than conducting a class. It just is. It's, it's, so, it's like a fun lab. It's just So I don't know if I could have held seven, eight, nine class conducted classes a week and run the school. I, I actually don't think I could have done it. So that I, I have to preface that. I also uh, always had a staff, you know? I mean, without a good manager, you can't do this. Right. You really need to make some very clear distinctions. You need to get out of the way so that, that your manager can actually really do the work and that you're, you're less in the front lines. It's tough. It really is. You need, you need a good staff. Without a good staff, without a good manager, without learning how to not take things personally and protect yourself, it would be very difficult to have a school and be a full-time teacher at that school. It would be really, really hard. Right, right. I think the ones that do it well have a really good manager. I, I see that too. I'm thinking of, a, I have a friend in mine who has an excellent manager and it's a manager who doesn't aspire to be like a famous yoga teacher. She's a manager. She's just really great at that. And so she enjoys doing it and she does it really well. And she doesn't have, you know, separate yoga aspirations as far as I know. (laughs) That's in my opinion, the only way it can work. Yeah. And work well. I mean, unless you have a school where your teachers are part of the profit share. If you have that kind of a school and everything is wide open, then I think it can be very different and it actually could be potentially very helpful because if your teachers are invested in the bottom line, then there is less likely to have issues. You know, it's like, okay, wow, my class isn't doing well. Okay, well, it's hurting the bottom line. Why don't we try giving it to her instead and I'll move to that slot, you know? Huh. Unfortunately, it's all tangled up in in finances and all of that. So, I mean, that's, I I think, the only other way it could work is if you have a school where your teachers are part of the management profit sharing. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I want to say one more thing about kind of the, uh, I think it just is worth spending a little more time talking about the big poses. I think social media has First of all, if you spend any time on social media, you see many able-bodied people doing crazy things. And sometimes, you know, many times they're probably going to hurt themselves eventually. But, you know, some people are just simply capable. And now that you have access to seeing them in this central place, it's just like a deluge of people. So I think, you know, there's two two pitfalls with go, along, go that go along with that. And one of them is kind of what we've already talked about, which is this idea of, feeling like, oh, if only I could do that pose, like I'll really be a yogi, like this feeling of achievement. But then I think the other downside is there can be a perception that if someone can do really, really hard poses and do them really well, that they make the best teachers, right? Like 
that person can do Yogi Dandasana and it's gorgeous and she can bind. Oh my gosh, I want to take class from her. She must be an incredible teacher. So I just wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. And I mean, I know it's a complicated question, but I'll just put it out there. It's not something that I believe. I don't believe that someone who can do the hardest poses makes the best teacher. And that's totally my bias. I'm wondering what you think about that. I'll take it in a couple of different ways. Well, absolutely. Uh, It's a complicated subject because if you can't do a pose, it is difficult to teach it. But I will say that one of the best teachers I've ever had for backbends was a very stiff teacher Hmm. that could not do the poses that I could do. So they were actually able to help me achieve bigger, bigger backbends that they personally could not ever do better than any other teacher I'd ever had. But this was rare. Okay. This was rare. It was, it was a really good senior Iyengar teacher and they just were stiff, but they really did their homework. And I think part of being stiff is great because if you're flexible and things come to you naturally, you often can't teach well. You ask, you often really can't teach well because you really don't understand what it takes to do it because you were just able to do it. Right, right. It's a combination. It's not one or. It's a stiff teacher could be a very, very, very good teacher. And then there are some stiff teachers that just can't get there. They just they can't get past. They, they can't. So it's not one or the other. And very often flexible teachers are not good teachers because they don't understand what it's like to live in a stiff body. But I will say that I had an epiphany the other day. I was at the farmer's market here in uh, my little town. You know, I was talking to a man who's, I think, probably in his late, early 60s, maybe late 50s. And he must have been an Ashtangi hippie in the old days. And he's telling me how he's back at his practice working on it. And he's this close, you know, just an inch from holding in Mari Chasana D. Oh, my gosh. And I was like, you know, it's not that important. <laughs> he said, oh, yes, it is. And I had an epiphany just there. I was like, you know what? Maybe this is just humanity, you know? And the yoga world is not above humanity. I mean, here is someone who should know better, really should know better. And they don't. Yeah. And and I thought to myself, okay, well, you know, maybe it's just that as yoga teachers, this is part of what we just have to keep teaching. It's like you have to keep teaching Trikonasana, you have to keep teaching, you know, Maybe it's just one of the things that we have to teach and that, and it takes time. And some people are, you know, denser than others, you know, Um, and it takes longer to understand that this is just not that important and that we just have to breathe every time when the student's not hearing it, we have to like breathe out and go, I love, you know, I'll send love your way and I'll try again tomorrow. I mean, yeah, no, that is absolutely, I mean, I, the parallel for me is parenting. I mean, they're just things that are innate to the human process that can be so disheartening sometimes. Yeah. You know, because you see the suffering that we create for ourselves. And when you can stand outside and see it, you just want to like help the person so badly. But like you said, all you can do is offer what you can offer and let them figure it out in their own time, in their own way. And always, always communicate. I mean, like I said, I I go into these big conferences now and I'm looking at the sea of people who are just like, you know, they want to work out. And the first thing I talk to them about is that that's not what we're going to do. And this is why and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, most of them settle down and many of them afterwards say, wow, you know, that was the hardest class I ever took, but we didn't do any of this and this and that. And I learned so much and, you know. But I communicate. Yeah. I've learned that you have to communicate because if you don't communicate, then their minds are really, really busy and they never settle. And so you, this is the art of teaching. you got to communicate. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Then their minds are busy and they never really settle. Whereas if you communicate, it allows for them to focus on what you're saying. Like if it allows, yeah, it allows for them to focus. Yeah. Like, okay, shit, I'm in the wrong class, but I'm, I've signed up, so I might as well stay here. And somehow something relaxes. And then all of a sudden, if you're good at what you do and you can engage them, 
but again, as you're engaging them, you're communicating, you know, you're not just throwing out, you're explaining things, you're making it, you're, you're really explaining things in a way that, that talks to them. And I find that most yoga students are intelligent and they, they, they get it. They're like, Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually love that you just said that because I remember when I was, I was working at a startup at one point and it was actually a startup of physicians. And I just remember the marketing director saying, you know, at our practice, we do not talk down to people. We treat people like they're intelligent and that they can understand what we're talking about. And that's really revolutionary, right, in Western medicine. Like, I don't I mean to knock Western medicine, but, you know, I think people often complain that doctors talk down to them and they don't listen to them. They don't communicate with them like an equal. And, you know, I just thought, I thought about how she said that and how it applies to just like everything in life. You just want to treat someone else. There's no point in talking down to someone else if you want to try to get, get yourself across. Like you want to trust that, that we're all in the same boat and that if you communicate well enough, you'll understand each other. Yeah. And I mean, I'm flashing on one other thing right now as you're talking, and that is that I mean, I think the public also needs to be educated. And it, this is one, one thing that, that is good if you have a school and a, a director that is responsible and that they have a bigger message that goes on to the community. But I think that if you're a teacher and you're just focused on these advanced poses and on working out, that it, maybe you're insecure in some way. You know, maybe there's an insecurity in some way or a lack of, you know, because I don't know, I... I just if you have to use that as a ways as a means of teaching, then you've missed the point. You've missed a really big point. Or if your class is all about you, you know, well, look at me, you know, demonstrating difficult things. You know, I, I so many times you see teachers and they it's, it's almost like a show. It's almost like a television show. You know, they've learned how to be like cool. You know, and it's like, I would just say, you know, think about it. Think about whether that's really connected in essence to yoga. Yeah. What insecurity is that feeding? You know, what insecurity is that feeding? Is that, and is that how you want to live your life? Right. And if that's there and you need more support to feel more grounded in your teaching, that's okay. Like it's a lifelong process to learn this art form. I just would love to know, you know, and we had a conversation before the interview about our mutual sensitivity in life and, you know, being sensitive as children and things like that. And I know for myself how much yoga and meditation have helped me through all of that, like just balance my nervous system and just so many things. I'm wondering if, you know, at this point in your life and with the perspective that you have, if you could kind of distill personally how this practice has, has helped you, how it served you? On just the most basic level, if I've had a day or two of travels where I didn't do yoga and I just put my mat down, you know, it's like nine o'clock at night. I just walked into the, you know, the room I'm staying at and I lay down on the ground and I twist. I do a simple twist or whatever, you know, the little things I do. I know that the yoga works on me in a way that nothing else can. I know that that contact with the ground is so profound. And I, I don't even have words for it. It's just so profound. Yeah. That I know that it is a very important thing to do. It settles me. I mean, just settles me because I need that. I, I, I need that kind of internal settling so that I... I, I'm not thrown by the winds that life has for me, you know? I can feel it in my DNA. Mm. It goes into my DNA. It's like, oh, yeah, uh, this, I'm back home. And I, I don't even know if it's logical, you know, or I could put it in words. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Thank you. Well, you know, I love you so much, and I respect you so much, and I just i am so grateful for you. Thanks for everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mati. Mm. 
Thanks as always for listening, everyone. You can find show notes for this episode at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 42. I will, of course, put a link to Mati's website where you can find her schedule. And until next week, enjoy your practice. <laughs>